And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. She is a woman who has worn many hats. She is a respected physical therapist. She specializes in pediatrics. She's part of a team that developed the youth education curriculum for ICSL. She was our youth director here at the center for many, many years. And she teaches science of mind classes, part of our accredited class program, and she is currently in chaplaincy training, uh, the program at the U of A Stollery. Will you please join me in welcoming a woman who truly teaches and demonstrates living from spirit? She is a huge asset to the center. I love her dearly. Please welcome Reverend Connie Neeson. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome. I'm just going to ask Julie to pray us in. All right, please close your eyes and join with me and know. There is one power, one life, one divine energy that flows in as and through me. It is the truth of who and what I am. And I embrace this divine essence of myself fully and completely and know that as I move through the next hour, through the rest of the day, through the rest of the week, that I express that inherent beauty and love that is only mine to express and give. I know that I am a unique and divine individual, that who and what I am is perfect, that I am in the right place at the right time, doing the perfect thing. And I am so very grateful for this center, for this teaching, for this opportunity to come together with like minds, our bodies and our souls together and our minds all at the same place. Because this is an absolute celebration of who and what we are. And I know that the message today resounds deeply in my consciousness that the message is for me. And so with absolute thanks for all that has been, for all that is yet to be, and particularly for what is right here and right now, I release these words to the law, claiming this hour, this teaching, and this center as an absolute success in the mind of the one, knowing this is already so. I let go and let God, and together we say, so it is. is. Thank you. Well, it is so good to be here and to be here with all of you. As you heard, I'm off doing some chaplaincy training, and as a result, I haven't been around as much and haven't been teaching classes, and so it is so good to be home and to see everybody at once. And I want to do a big shout-out to everybody that came to Deepak Chopra on Monday night. We had a wonderful group from our center that was there, and lots of people inquiring about us. So it was a good evening all around. I want to begin my talk today by sharing with you an essay that was written by a boy who is eight years old, and it it was about explaining God. And this is what he wrote. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die so there will be enough people 
on the earth to take care of things. He doesn't make grown-ups, he just makes babies. I think because they are smaller and easier to make. That way he doesn't have to take up his time, his valuable time, teaching them to walk and talk. He can just leave that to the mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers, pray at times other than bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the TV or radio because of this. And because he hears everything, there must be a terrible lot of noise in his ears. But maybe he's found a way to turn it off. God sees everything, hears everything, and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your mom and dad's head asking for something that they said you couldn't have. Atheists are people who don't believe in God. I don't think there are any in my city. At least there aren't any who come to our church. Good observation. Jesus is God's son. He used to do all the hard work like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of him, of his preaching to them, and they crucified him. But he was good and kind like his father, and he told his father that they didn't know what they were doing and to forgive them, and God said, okay. His dad, God, appreciated everything that he had done and all his hard work on earth, so he told him he didn't have to go out on the road anymore. He could stay in heaven, and so he did. And now he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones he can take care of for himself without having to bother God. Like a secretary, but more important. You can pray any time you want, and they are sure to hear you because... They got it worked out, so one of them is on duty all of the time. You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy, and if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Don't skip church to do something like that will be more fun like going to the beach. This is wrong. And besides, <laughs> the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you, like to camp, but God can. It's good to know he's around you when you're scared in the dark, or when you can't swim very good, or when you get thrown in real deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here, and he can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God. When I was young, I don't remember writing any essays or letters like that, but I do remember that every night my mom would tuck me into bed and I would say my prayers. They were the ones that I had to memorize, not the ones I made up. And it's interesting, isn't it, how a child will take an idea and embellish it and make it work for them in their own situation. I felt that if I didn't say my prayers and ask for his blessings for all of my family and everyone everywhere, that something horrible was sure to happen and God wouldn't bless us. Now I've spent over 20 years in this science of mind, new thought, teaching, learning the teachings of Ernest Holmes and, and many of his contemporaries and the people he learned from and, and more of our contemporary teachers. And I still pray, but I don't wait till bedtime. 
I pray as soon as I wake up in the morning. And I pray throughout the day, whenever I feel myself getting sucked in or pulled into any idea of lack or limitation. And I pray when someone calls and asks to pray. And I talk to God, and I still call it God. But my idea of God has really changed. It's grown. It's expanded. I have new awarenesses. So I'm not praying to that him or her up in the sky. I know that God is an energy, a life force, a presence, an essence. It's nature. It's love. It's humanity. I recognize it as that everywhere present, all-powerful, all-knowing thing. It's the essential self within and without. I do not fear God. God is my constant companion. And no matter how many words I use to describe it, no matter how big I make those words, those words still seem to never really capture the allness that it is. It's kind of like if you imagined my imaginary apple in my hand. And if you tried to explain to someone who had never seen or tasted an apple what it was, You might say what color it is. You might say what shape it is. You might say how it tastes, how it smells, the firmness of it. But they really wouldn't know it until they experienced it. And then they could just say, ah, apple. The qualities of an apple make it an apple. And if you changed something about it, if you took one of them away, it just wouldn't be an apple anymore. And so it is with God. We think of all these ways to describe God to each other. But to capture the allness is really to experience the presence of God in our lives. As some of you are aware, and as Julie shared, I am doing uh, a unit of study in clinical pastoral education, which is the training for chaplain, the beginning of the training for chaplaincy. I'm about two-thirds of the way through my program. And I chose to do this because I really wanted to deepen my experience with ministry and I wanted to step out of my comfort zone, which is being here with you, and move out into the world with this foundation of science of mind, of new thought, of the Center for Spiritual Living into another realm. And I so appreciate when when people check in with me and ask me how it's going and offer their love and support. And it's so nice to know that I have a home to come back to. When I first started back in October and we had a week long of orientation, you know that any time you get together with a group that you know you're going to spend some intense six months with, there's always that period of time of getting to know you. And so, of course, in orientation, we got to know the others. And I'm with five other people in my class and my supervisor. And then there are seven others who have already done their first unit. They're in their second, third, or fourth unit of study. And so it was all about getting to know them, who they are, why they chose to take this journey in uh, uh, spiritual care, and of course to talk about the faith tradition that they come from. I chose this particular uh, way to study this because it is billed as an interfaith uh, kind of a chaplaincy route. And so I was looking forward to being with people of many different faiths and and learning from them. I I hope to see a Buddhist and someone who's maybe Hindu or native spirituality or Jewish or, you know, just to see a whole mix of things, you know, because I love to learn from them all. And I got there and they were all Catholics and Christians. 
But of course, then there was me. They'd never heard. The people I'm with, they never heard of New Thought. They never heard of Science of Mind. They never even heard, some of them, of the Center for Spiritual Living. All of a sudden, I felt blank and without an identity. I didn't even know if I felt like I had a right to exist for a moment there. Nobody had heard of something that has absolutely transformed and changed my life. I get up and I, I do affirmative prayers and I'm meditating and I'm reading all this wonderful stuff from all of our wonderful teachers. Nobody had ever heard of it before. The second wake-up call for me that really took a hit to my spiritual ego was as we oriented in our clinical settings in the hospitals and they gave us all kinds of paper about what we were expected to do and the information we would gather and how we would find out about our patients and whatnot. Well, you know when you go in and if, if you've ever registered or admitted anybody into hospital, they always ask you for what religion you are. And you don't have to tell them anything about religion and many people don't. But what happens is that on your admission papers, there's a little box where they put a code for the religion that the person states they are. So I get handed a sheet of codes with maybe 30 or more different codes on it. There's everything from no religion stated to doesn't want to tell what religion they are to atheists to spiritual without a community to church but nothing else. But there was no new thought. There was no science of mind. There was no center for spiritual living. Again, I don't exist. What I believe in, where I go, where I practice, doesn't exist in this world. So I do appreciate that there's room for something to happen there and something will happen, but it also speaks to each one of us to step up and claim who we are. And I know we don't always call ourselves a religion, but we are a spiritual teaching, and that's one way to acknowledge it. And it's, and it's not that we're the only ones that might have a problem with this. I have met many, many people from the Muslim faith in my journey of chaplaincy who also said no religion stated when they were admitted. And I can understand that maybe some people feel uncomfortable broadcasting that. But they've been some of the most wonderful people. I've had some of the most wonderful experience and talks with these people who had no religion per se. So spiritual care, chaplaincy, often was referred to as pastoral care in the past, is really what we do when we sit with someone, when we just listen and be a presence for them. And that's a really important thing to do for someone when they're going through a crisis. And it's not that a chaplain or a minister or a practitioner has any corner on the market of providing spiritual care. I know that all of you also provide spiritual care, whether you call it that or not. I know that each one of you have sat with someone, whether it be a friend, a partner, a spouse, a family member, a child, a student, a colleague, an employee, or just a stranger at the bus stop. You have sat with someone and just listened and been a presence for them in their life. And you have, in fact, provided spiritual care just by listening. And sometimes listening for what it is maybe you can do, but it's not about doing, it's really about being present. When I look at chaplaincy, chaplaincy is kind of taking that idea of, of being a good listener to the extreme. You know how there's extreme sports, 
You know, you can ride your bike down a city bike path or you can go careening off the edge of a mountain, right? You know, you can do extreme makeovers, whatever. Chaplaincy is kind of like extreme spiritual care. When I show up, I have no idea what my day looks like. I don't have an appointment book and I'm going to see Mr. Brown now and Mrs. Smith then and blah, blah, blah. None of that. You go in and you have no idea what your day is going to be. And there's sometimes when we're on call. So I never know. My day could be happening at 8 o'clock in the morning or it could be happening at 2.30 a.m. I could be called to see someone who's just having a hard time or I could be seeing someone who is preparing to say goodbye to a loved one, whether they are 90, 19, or 9 days old. I could be sitting with someone waiting for their spouse to come so that together they can say goodbye to their child. I could be sitting with a family as they recall and recollect the life and times of their father, their husband, and their grandfather. I just never know what my day is going to look like. I might walk in and find myself in a deep conversation about God with someone, but their God may not be my God, but I know it is. They may have a different persona for their God, or they may have no God at all. But yet there is something within me and within them that allows us to still have a very meaningful conversation. And what I've discovered most about this path, as I have in ministry, is that although I am there for them, it's really about me. It's really about who I am when I show up. It's about who I am when I'm with you. It's about who I am and who you are when we're together, knowing that something wonderful is truly going to be co-created out of that coming together. And you know, we all have to come from somewhere. We all have experiences that we bring with us wherever we go. And those ideas had to come from somewhere, just like that little child writing their essay. And so if you go back and imagine my apple... We all know that apples come from apple trees. And if you've ever had an apple tree in your backyard or in your grandma's backyard or if you've ever lived in the Okanagan or like me, I was in the Annapolis Valley when I was young, you saw an apple tree as the buds came out in spring, as the new green leaves popped out, as the flowers blossomed, as the fruit began to develop and ripen. And you saw that tree, even in the dead of winter, with no leaves, with no fruit, and you still knew it was an apple tree. And you still knew what the potential was of that apple tree to create all those wonderful, tasty apples that you could then see apple pie in, apple crisp, apple crumble, apple muffins, apple sauce, apples, are you getting hungry yet? Apple cider, apple juice. You know, we can look even at a barren tree and see potential. But now imagine if you've never had that experience, if you don't know what an apple is, you've never seen an apple tree, you don't know what it looks like, and you come upon an apple tree. Well, if it has no apples on it, you'll have no idea what it is. And if it's the springtime, there's leaves on it, but no apples, you still don't know what it is. Even the blossoms, you still don't know what it is. And in the dead of winter, when there's nothing on it, it just looks like twigs. If you don't know what it is and you don't see that potential there, you might just go and chop it down for firewood. Or cut it down and get it out of the way so you can improve your view. Or put in a pad for the RV to park on. You know? 
It's not understanding. It's just not having had the experience or the awareness to know what this is and what the potential is. And so it is with God. If no one ever talked to you about God or no one ever stood in the place of God in your life, like a parent or a mentor or someone, if you never had the experience of unconditional love, if you never had a sense of trust with anyone, if you never knew that there was someone there to support you, in whom who would see you and appreciate you just the way you are, if you never had that experience, you might never see it. You might never see that potential in anyone else. Our relationship with God reflects our early relationship with our environment and the people in it. And so when it comes to sitting down with someone and offering spiritual care, so much of our previous experience we bring with us. Can I sit down with someone and allow that which is divine within me to speak to that which is divine within them? Will I remember that the building blocks of all life in all people, in all things, are love, perfection, harmony, oneness, intelligence, strength, wisdom, and truth? And would you be able to hear a message and give a message that says, you are wanted. I love you for who you are and just the way you are. I see you. You're safe. You're cared for. Your needs will be met. You will not be betrayed. You matter and your presence matters. And so even in the presence of one who has forgotten, who is experiencing essential blindness, who has not had the experience of these messages, there become distortions, delusions in thought. It's not that any of these things are missing from them, but there is a belief, there is a thought that they don't exist based on their early experience. And so these twisted Ideas, these delusions turn into messages of, well, this is good and this isn't. That there's a duality, that there's a right and a wrong way of doing things. That I'm separate, that all things are separate. That I can have the vanity to say, I can do it myself. I don't need anybody's help or support. Anything I do is for me, and what I do has no impact on anyone else. I'm not supported by anyone else. I'll do it for myself. I don't trust anyone. But oh, is there something wrong with me? Those might be some of the ways our thoughts, in the absence of the belief of our highest truth, what they might turn into be. As a giver of spiritual care, I am required to show up empty and full. That paradox of life again empty yet full. I'm required to show up empty of these delusions and distortions in thinking. I'm required to let go of anything that might limit me in my belief for myself and for the other. And yet I'm required to be filled up 
filled up with the transcendent qualities from the heart of compassion, of harmony, of a healing presence, of unconditional love. And how many times in these past four months have I sat and listened with someone and that was enough to let them know they were heard and to have them say, wow, it felt so good to talk to someone. That is a special moment. And so in being a presence, a presence to offer spiritual care, I'm reminded of this story written by Chuang Tzu, and I hope I say his name right. He was an early Taoist writer, lived around the 400 BC time in Japan. And it goes like this, it's the story of the woodcarver. Hing, the master carver, made a bell stand of precious wood. When it was finished, all who saw it were astounded. They said, it must be the work of spirits. The prince of Lu said to the master carver, what is your secret? Hing replied, I am only a workman. I have no secret. There is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit, did not expend it on trifles that were not to the point. I fasted in order to set my heart at rest. After three days fasting, I had forgotten gain and success. After five days, I had forgotten praise or criticism. After seven days, I had forgotten my body with all its limbs. By this time, all thought of your highness and of the court had faded away. All that might distract me from the work had vanished. I was collected in the single thought of the bell stand. Then I went to the forest to see the trees in their own natural state. When the right tree appeared before my eyes, the bell stand also appeared. In it, clearly and beyond doubt, all I had to do was put forth my hand and begin. If I had not met this particular tree, there would have been no bell stand at all. What happened? My own collected thought encountered the hidden potential in the wood. From this live encounter came the work which you ascribe to the spirits. That live encounter the woodcarver refers to is that encounter that we have with each other. When I am me and you are you, and we connect with each other at that deep level. The woodcarver has an important message for us about emptying ourselves, about fasting, about forgetting. He was commanded to do this. It might not have been the right time for him. We don't know what, what else was going on in his life. It may not have been the right time. But for him to say no to the prince, well, we've all seen the last samurai or shogun. That's what would happen if you turned down the prince. So he felt compelled. But he had to let go of his idea of who he was, a master carver. He had to let go of the command to do something and produce something that was perfect. He had to let go of any idea of gain or fame that he might get from doing this. He simply had to find within him 
that which would carve the wood so that he could go into the forest and find the one that would be the bell stand. So it is our duty, it is our place to offer spiritual care for ourselves and for each other, to come together in an act of co-creation as the carver did in the tree, to let the moment you are with another be a moment of joy and harmony, love and patience, honor and forgiveness, surrender, of actively being present in the moment to hear, to see, to feel, to know what is happening now, what is being called, to hear that call. Our world is changing, have you noticed? It may be happening in your own little world, but it's also happening in a very global way. We have reached a tipping point, possibly. The meditations and prayers of conscious evolutionaries calling for the transformation of consciousness on this planet for many millennia are witnessing in North Africa and the Middle East an outpicturing of this consciousness. People are claiming their divine inheritance. People are understanding their true nature, not what somebody told them, but their true nature of freedom, not oppression. Freedom to think, freedom to express who they are, to live in dignity and respect as one, not in separation, fear, lack, or limitation. For there is no private good on this planet. We all breathe the same air. We are not alone. We do not work in isolation, even when we have no one else in the room with us. So today is a day I let my highest prayer be a prayer for myself and a prayer that includes all people everywhere. Teresa of Avila said, Spirit has no body on earth but yours, no hand but yours, no feet but yours. You are the eyes through which it pours compassion into the world. Yours are the hands that are blessing me now. All the praise to the one. Ernest Holmes, at the end of the Science of Mind textbook, writes this final conclusion. What the world needs is spiritual conviction followed by spiritual experience. I would rather see a student of this science prove its principle than to have him repeat all the words of wisdom that have ever been uttered. It is far easier to teach truth than to practice it. But the practice of truth is personal to each. And in the long run, no one can live our life for us. For to each is given what he needs, and the gifts of heaven come alike to all. How we shall use these gifts is all that matters. To hold one's thoughts steadfastly to the constructive, to that which endures, and to the truth, may not be easy in a rapidly changing world. But to the one who makes the attempt, much is guaranteed. The essence of spiritual mind healing and of all true religious philosophy is an inner realization of the presence of perfection within and around about. It is the hope of heaven, the voice of God proclaiming, I am that which thou art. Thou art that 
which I am. So today let us celebrate our oneness with people all over this planet and with the person next to you. Let go of what was, of any stories you may have been told. Allow yourself to be emptied, to fast, to forget, and yet to remember your highest and truest nature that so desires to be expressed through you here and now. Thank you for being here. Namaste.